As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 100. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, today we're marking a big milestone. This is our 100th episode of What Should I Read Next? To celebrate, next week, we're bringing you a -a one-of-a-kind episode looking back. We'll discuss our origin story, share highlights and bloopers and some so-bad-they're-good negative reviews, tackle frequently asked questions, spotlight our favorite moments, and more. That's coming next week, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. It's going to be a really fun one, and we can't wait to share it with you. This week, I'm chatting with Keith Watts, a Seattle resident who credits Star Wars with making him a reader and Top Gun for making him a history major. Keith and I discuss what it's like to grow up in a house full of books as a kid and how he later figured out how to be an adult reader. Today, we get into how and why the format he prefers to read in has changed with this stage of life and why he passionately believes one of the most popular books of the last few years is objectively terrible. I was especially excited to talk to Keith because he's devoted to a genre some of you listeners have said doesn't get enough love here on What Should I Read Next? Well, today we're making amends. Let's get to it. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you today. So we actually have a mutual friend who told me very early on that we need to talk, especially and explicitly because your reading taste is nothing like mine and not so similar to many of the guests we've had on the show. Yes, that's true. But I I do enjoy the show. Uh, It has allowed me to kind of broaden my horizons a little bit because it's definitely not what I would typically read. Oh, that's so interesting. How would you describe what you typically read? Science fiction. And it kind of ends there. Um, that's that's not really fair. It's science fiction and also, um, I guess, historical monographs. Is that what they're called? Biographies and uh, uh, history books. Uh, I was a history major in college, so I was studying to be a teacher originally. Uh, that did not pan out. But um, when you do that, they insist that you specialize in American history. What were your favorite topics or eras? 
from that period? You know, uh, uh, I say early early 20th century American history, um, the World Wars, the Depression. Then I did my, uh, you have like an undergraduate thesis, essentially. They don't call it that, but that's what it is. And I did that actually on uh, the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. So the Protestant Reformation and science fiction are the two big areas that you've read in your life? <laughs> well, that, that's the, the Protestant Reformation, I would say, is the area that I read um, academically. Um, but that is that would not be no that would not be my particular area of of interest that was my area of study but not my area of interest did you choose your area of study partially so um basically partner up with a professor you and about i don't know eight to ten other people and your topic kind of needs to be in your professor's wheelhouse so that they can help you with it and that happened to be hers so that was what I went with. Uh, it was it was great. You know, I le loved learning about it, but that's not the era that brought me into the, you know, that's not the reason I became a history major. Okay, interesting. I didn't know how all that worked. If you could identify a reason that you did become a history major, what would it be? Uh, Top Gun. Tell me more. <laughs> of all things. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know when I first watched that movie. I was only maybe three when it came out, but we had it on VHS. And so I would watch it every day in the summer and decided at some point uh, that I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And from there, started just devouring anything and everything I could find about pilots and planes. And from there, I found uh, actually one of the books that my dad owned um, on the shelf was uh, Chuck Yeager's autobiography. You know, the, a big portion of it was his experience as a pilot in World War II. And from there, I branched out and read everything I could read about World War II. And from there, it branched out and I read everything I could read about any time in history. So props to your dad for encouraging that childhood love. Did you have a family that loved, I, I want to say, good books, but maybe I should also say good movies? Can we call, we can call Top Gun a good movie, right? <laughs> well, I think so. I, I still can watch it, get enjoyment out of it. So um, yeah, yeah. My family were all big readers. My dad, funnily enough, that was one of the few books well few uh, that's not really fair but compared to my mom and my sister few books uh, my dad was actually he he read it he read and reads a ton but it's mostly magazines that he reads uh but my mom made up for it within the book department there was books everywhere um and then my sister and i kind of took after her and um yeah filled the house with books so there was always something to read i respect that what did your mom like to read christian literature i guess is what you would call it is that is that the right term you know, uh, Frank Peretti was big at the time, you know, when I was a kid. So stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, women's lit. So I would love to hear about when you discovered science fiction for yourself. Well, that that would start with a movie as well. That was Star Wars, though. Um, loved Star Wars. And, you know, this was back, you know, before Star Wars was I mean, Star Wars was always big, obviously, but it wasn't it was in its. Uh, lowest point, I would say. And I went to a new school um, and really at that point actually wasn't a reader because I was kind of in between YA and adult. And this was back when YA really was YA, like, you know, nothing over 200 pages, right? It, there was no Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> and so I, I kind of hadn't figured out how to be an adult reader, but kind of felt like whether I was or not, I felt like I was beyond the YA section in the library, right? Um, but I met a new friend at this new school and we, you know, found out he loves Star Wars too. And then he said, Hey, did you know there's these books? And he handed me one. He had one in his backpack and he said, yeah, you can borrow it. And it was, um, 
It was not one of the better ones. It was uh, uh, the Truce at Bakura, I think is what it was called, if anybody's actually interested. Uh, but I was hooked immediately because it was more Star Wars. You know, at that point, there were only three movies, no prequels. And I just dove into those and, uh, uh, again, branched out from there. You know, once I had discovered that I liked that, I found, you know, uh, Robert A. Heinlein and, uh, you know, Isaac Asimov and these classic science fiction writers and then, you know, found the the list of Hugo winners and started reading those. And, you know, it kind of all took off from there. So, again, it actually, again, it started with movies, strangely enough. I I think that's wonderful. Okay, I want to ask you a question, and I want to assure you that there is no right answer or answer I'm hoping for, or this is just strictly curiosity. You said that you read pretty much only science fiction. Do you do you like that about your reading life? No. Um, no. And, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's – I don't know that it's true that I pretty much only read science fiction. I, I would say, though, that that's where my interest in books is at. So that's the sort of thing – like if I'm looking for something to read, I'm going straight to, you know, the science fiction section of Audible or, you know, that's what I'm going for. And then every once in a while, you know, uh, my sister – uh, handed me uh, The Devil in the White City. And that was right in my wheelhouse. But I never would have sought that out. Keith, do you know, I think it's really hard to answer questions about your own reading life for anybody too, because they're so close to it. But have you ever thought about what it is about the genre of science fiction that you find so compelling? Is it habit? Or is it something more than that? I think it's, I think it's 75% habit. I think the other 25% is that science fiction, you're guaranteed one of two things and maybe both one is big ideas and the other is action you're going to get one of those for sure and i think with other genres particularly you know what would you what you would call i guess um literary fiction a lot of times it's just people in a room talking which you know can be fantastic right that you know uh, i loved pride and prejudice that's nothing but people talking in a room there's no action but it can also you know Laser guns are great, whether it's written well or not. And people talking, you know, dialogue is not always so good. I'm more willing to read a bad science fiction book than a bad anything else. Does that make sense? I think so. So, and this is really going to help me choose books for you, which I feel like I need all the help I can get. So you don't want people sitting around. So even if they're moving, doing stupid things poorly with bad dialogue, you'd rather they be doing something. Is this right? <laughs> uh, it, it makes the book easier to get through. Do you finish what you start or are you comfortable just? No. Yeah, I'll, I'll drop it. Yeah. Just to say, no, I don't think that's the right answer either. Just to say, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I do want to find you books that you'll actually stick with. There, there are times that I will push through, particularly if it's a book that is very, very popular. And if I know that I'm going to get into a conversation about it and I don't like it, and I'm afraid that someone will say, oh, well, did you even finish it? And so I'll finish it just so that I could say, yeah, I finished it. And the end was bad too. Right? <laughs> that was the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> there was no way I was putting that thing down despite it being, I, well, we'll talk about bad books later. But <laughs> we will. But honestly, I think reading a bad book can have many things going for it. Not the least of which is that you get to swap war stories like, well, I endured. <laughs> Let me tell you how bad that was. I mean, yeah. that once, once you have a little bit of distance on it and aren't currently smarting over how many hours you wasted when you could have been reading something better, 
that is kind of perversely fun to reminisce about with other people who've been there. Keith, what do the rhythms of your own reading life look like? Yeah, it's difficult. You know, I have a, uh, you know, my wife works full time, I work full time. um, And we have a two year old. Uh, So that makes things, it makes time to sit down and read a little hard. But uh, what that means is that I've basically just converted to audio and digital because I don't have to set aside time. I, I still love actually picking up a book and turning the pages and, you know, the smell and everything else that goes with it. But you have to set aside time for that. So what I tend to do is in the car, I've got either a podcast or a book on pretty much all the time. I don't, you know, I don't even listen to music in the car anymore. Uh, and then I usually also have um, something on my phone uh, or on my computer um, that I can read, you know, at, at lunch, at work or something like that. So, so sometimes I have two going at once. Sometimes if it's a podcast in the car, I'll be reading a book on the phone and then, you know, swap that with blogs and a book in the car, you know, something like that. So it sounds like it's easier for you to just dip into a book if it's digital, even if it's... Absolutely. Why do you think that is? That's so interesting. Uh, I, I really do think it has to do with just not having to think about it. You know, I can I can read a book, you know, waiting in line uh, at the bank or, you know, anytime I want. I can pull out my phone and start reading uh, if it's digital. If it's not, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where... Um, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and it makes it, makes it difficult to sit down and just do that. So you're saying the same way that we can like whip out our phone and just scroll through Instagram and the target checkout line. Mm -hmm. You could also pop open the ebook you're in the middle of. Yeah. I mean, you know, you need a little bit more time to, to find your place and remember what's going on. Um, so, you know, it's not going to replace Facebook, but, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm really curious because a lot of our listeners love reading but struggle with finding time to read. If you knew that you had seven minutes to kill, would you pull out a book? What's your threshold? Uh, probably 15. Okay. What about a paper book? Oh, uh, boy, I don't remember the last time I read a paper book. <laughs> that tells me a lot about your reading life. Uh, yeah. That's good to know. What's the, what's the obstacle? Is that preference or is there a – or is – is that all two-year-old? No, like I said, I, I I would love to. You know, I love that. That's how you know. It's until until maybe five years ago, that was the only way I had ever read a book. I'd never done you know books on tape or CD or anything, and and you know certainly there were no e-readers you know uh, growing up. It's just time. Uh, but you know, I still want to read. I don't want to stop reading. So you know, you find a way. Okay, well, I am really eager to dive into your favorites. But first, since you're way more familiar with science fiction than me, and a lot of people are in my shoes where they'd like to be reading more, do you have three accessible favorite science fiction novels you could recommend? Yeah, I suppose, uh, well, um, Leviathan Wakes, I think, would be a great one. That's uh, James S.A. Corey. And that one is uh, uh, currently a TV series as well on sci-fi. Um, and it's great. Uh, what what we in the biz would call hard hard sci-fi, meaning, you know, there's nothing uh, there's nothing that's completely beyond uh, the realm of of at least possibility. Um, you know, uh, traveling between planets takes months or sometimes years. You know, that, that's the that's a, an example. Um, and that one's really great. It's a murder mystery, 
with uh, with a nice twist at the end. That's a fun one. So Leviathan Wakes. Um, uh, another good one is is a lock in. Um, that one's fairly recent. I think just this last year, or maybe the year before. Um, that one actually, I would recommend the audio version. There's two versions of the audio book because the main character, um, it's never addressed. Uh, uh, what gender the main character is. And so the audiobook, there's two versions. There's one read by a male reader and one read by a female reader. And I, the two different versions, I think it's actually interesting to listen to both of them. Um, and that's a great one. Let's see. How, oh, how about The Passage? Um, uh, that's another recent one. Um, that's uh, Justin Cronin. And that one is, that one actually kind of, there's not a ton of really sci-fi stuff. It's really more horror, I suppose, would be the genre. So if you're looking for that, if you're looking for, you know, um, if you like vampires, that's a, that's a, it's really good, uh, but not your traditional Dracula vampire and not your, you know, um, twilight sparkly vampire. It's like scary vampires. Um, that one's really good and is a nice long, tr- the beginning of a nice long trilogy too. So if you're looking for something to really dig into, um, and then, you know, uh, if you like that stuff, I think the classics, um, you can start digging in there too. Um, and if you're, you know, something accessible, I think any of Heinlein's, um, young, young adult novels, which they didn't call them that then, I'm not sure what they called them. Uh, but like, you know, Starship Troopers is, is great. Um, it has some problematic politics, but the, uh, the action is, is really good. And also, um, it will give you you know, it was very, very influential and you still see its influence uh, current in current science fiction. So that would be a good one. That's so interesting that you point out the problematic politics because I don't know what the kids are reading now or the cadets rather at the United States Air Force Academy. But when a dear friend went there as a, you know, as a 19 year old, every incoming freshman had to read that book because of the problematic politics. So far as I know, they still read that book. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a of a manifesto. A, a lot of the book is, you know, Heinlein's stand-in character, literally standing at the front of a classroom and preaching um, his own politics, which is funny because later books, he kind of does a 180 um, and goes in a completely, uh, in an equally ridiculous and nutty direction, but the opposite direction. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, I read that one, I read that one when I was really young, um, maybe 11 or 12, uh, and did not see any of that. I just saw the big monsters and the cool suits and the guns. Um, but going back and reading it as an adult, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, certainly timely. I haven't read that in 20 years. So now I'm very curious what my present day self would think of that book. Also, I really admire when a book can work on multiple levels like that. So I'm intrigued all over again. So thanks for sharing some favorite science fiction novels. Are you ready to share some general favorite novels for today? Yeah, let's do it. Keith, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately. And we're going to decide what you should read next. Fantastic. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, go for it. So the first one uh, is uh, Ancillary Justice by uh, Anne Leakey. This one it won the Hugo a couple years ago. Um, it's uh, it's a really kind of really great personal story, but set in this huge, um, you know, star-spanning empire, right? The typical 
uh, space opera setting um, about this uh, ship that is destroyed uh, and then seeks revenge on the person that destroyed it using the body of one of its of one of its ancillaries, which are these humans who've been uh, enslaved and turned over to the ship's control to kind of uh, be its crew. Uh, and one survives and contains the consciousness of the ship and goes on this adventure. And it's, it's a cool concept. Um, and the, uh, the culture and the ideas that are presented are, are, are very interesting and it was well-deserving of its Hugo win. Um, so that's ancillary justice. What landed this on your favorites list? This is one, this is one of those that, uh, is a little short on action. Um, but is presents some really cool, big ideas. And I think that's what got it on there is the society that this, uh, person, uh, the main character lives in and uh, narrates you and walks you through is just so different. Uh, but you can also kind of see the threads that might get us there. Um, and it was really cool. Keith, what's another of your favorites? So the second one is Go Like Hell uh, by A.J. Bamey. Um, this is the story of uh, Ford versus Ferrari at Le Mans in the late 60s. And if you don't know what any of those words I just said are, uh, it's car racing. Um, and it, anybody who's interested in motorsport is going to know that that story immediately. Uh, it probably sounds to a lot of people like something they wouldn't be interested in, but uh, they should give it a try because it's it's a fantastic story. It has drama and death and romance and uh, corporate espionage, uh, but mostly it's about revenge um, and uh, revenge that plays itself out in public in front of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And it's, it's just really, really good. How did you happen to pick that one up? Uh, uh, I heard about it on a podcast actually, and went and checked it out. And it's a story that I knew, you know, being um, at least somewhat interested in motorsport. It's, a, I, I was aware of it. Um, but the the opportunity to read a book like this that isn't uh, that isn't told kind of as a in a like a textbook way, but is really reads like a novel. I mean, it has like scenes of dialogue and everything. And in fact, I listened to the the audiobook version of this one, um, and the narrator does like accents. The all the Italian characters, you know, sound like Mario, and the British characters have like a very stereotypical British accent, and and. Uh, it really kind of heightens the drama and and makes it feel less like you're reading nonfiction and more like you're reading uh, a really great story. That sounds amazing. Okay, so earlier this year, I might have gone like, oh, a book about car racing. But my family just had a family reunion in Colorado, and we happened to go mostly because of a question of where we had to be when to a museum near the Broadmoor outside Colorado Springs that was dedicated to the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb. The PPIHC. Yeah. That's what they call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, Pikes I'm an outsider. I didn't know that's what they call it. Yeah. Pikes Peak is great because there's so little regulation. So the cars are just crazy. It's terrifying. They had all these videos. I thought my children were going to be traumatized watching these people roll down the hill and die yeah. on the. Oh yeah, there's there's no uh, there's no guardrails. That's you know car racing. Um, car racing is an amazing sport. You know it's it's like mountain climbing except with an audience. And I say that to mean that like people die 
even to this day, people die racing cars and they've, they've gotten a lot better. And obviously no one wants that, but it happens and it still happens. And, uh, and it, it just kind of, it gives everything, a a stake that no other sport ha- other than, again, other than, you know, maybe, uh, Mountain climbing and bullfighting, you know, if you want to use uh, if you want to use uh, Hemingway's definition of sports, um, <laughs> it's a lot of fun to watch, particularly, I think, um, if you can kind of get out of the NASCAR corporate, you know, NASCAR is very, very corporate. Um, you know, it's all about sponsorships and stuff. And I, I personally, I don't think it's as fun as much fun to watch as the the smaller um, races that, you know, a little bit more of the personality of the drivers can come through. See, I don't know enough to know about the difference between NASCAR and whatever. Although I do think the cars driving on the inner cities of Europe are very cool. I've caught my husband and son peeking at those sometimes as I wander through the living room on a weekend afternoon. But the thing about the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb, I'm not going to try to get that acronym right, is that it made me see that even though I didn't think I was interested in cars, I'm very much interested in a compelling story about human drama and struggle and adventure and achievement. And I love a good book that can take something like car racing or founding a startup or a bike race or climbing Everest that isn't about something I thought I was interested in and really wrote me in. I love it when a story can do that. A nonfiction true tale can do that. Yeah, this, uh, you know, go like, I think fits right into that category with like into thin air is a, is a great example of a book that, you know, you might have no interest whatsoever in mountain climbing, but you have to read into thin air. You, if you're a book lover, you just have to read it. And once you've read it, you'll understand why. And I think go like hell you know, I'm not going to say go like hell is as good as into thin air because, you know, it's not, <laughs> but it's in that same, it's in that same genre of books that it doesn't matter if you're, if you are into car racing, go like hell is a great story. Keith, what's your third favorite? So the third one is a book called Lockstep by Carl Schroeder. And this book, I think a little bit unfairly got pigeonholed into the YA category. Uh, and, and I understand why, because it's, you know, it's a story about a teenager who doesn't know it, but turns out to be the chosen one. And, you know, it, classic YA tropes, right? But when you move beyond that, the, um, the concept that the author is playing with here is so different than anything else that I've ever read in science fiction. And I, after I finished it, I had to just know everything about it. So I went and found an interview with the author. And what he said that he was trying to do is create a um, planet-spanning, you know, interplanetary empire that did not depend on faster-than-light travel. So, you know, basic science, obviously, to get from one one solar system to another takes a really, really long time. And so typically in science fiction, they'll come up with some way to move faster than the speed of light so that you can advance your story. And he said, okay, I don't want to do that. And so um, what he did instead is he took this other science fiction trope, which is hypersleep, where someone gets put into a pod and they get frozen and then sent over to the other planet and then unfrozen so that they can do whatever it is they were going there to do. And he says, okay, well, the problem with that is that everybody on your home planet has aged, you know, 60, 100, 200, 1,000 years by the time you get back. So he said, well, what if rather than 
going into hypersleep in order to travel, you wait until you go into hypersleep and then do your traveling so that basically everybody in the entire society goes into hypersleep together, whether they're traveling or not, stays there for a set amount of time and then wakes up for a set amount of time and then goes back into hypersleep again in lockstep. And there's the title of the book. So what that means is that you can have these different societies all living amongst each other that operate at a different schedule. So like the main group, maybe they're 30 years asleep and then they're awake for 30 days. But then this other group, they might be uh, asleep for 21 years and then awake for seven days or something like this. And then you get these societies that advance at different rates but are living right next to each other. And it's it's uh, it was a trip to try to get your head around as you read it. But it's really, really good. Okay, that sounds really interesting. And it's not a book I'm familiar with. It's worth seeking out. It's really good. Okay. Keith, how do you feel about the H word? Oh, I'm fine with it. All right. What's a book you hate? Ready Player One. <laughs> it is truly terrible. And the the thing that gets me going about it is that so many people, when you talk to them, I understand liking a bad book. I get that completely. And I get why people like this book. But what bothers me so much about it is that people don't recognize how bad it is. They think I like it and also it's good. Right? <laughs> I like it part fine with that, you know, but oh, also it's a modern classic. No, sorry. It's truly terrible. It's yeah, not a fan. Okay. First, why do you think people like it? Uh, it's nostalgia, pure and simple. It's, and that's really the entire book is the author just naming one thing that people loved in their childhood after another. That's the whole book. It's, you know, Nintendo. Here's this, here's this band that you liked. Remember this? Here's this thing that you loved over and over and over again for the entire, for the entire, however many 300 pages. That's the whole book. So you've got the feel good vibes going. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, why is it no good? Uh, you know, a pop culture reference is one thing. That's fine. But have the courage to make the pop culture reference and have it be a reference and move on. It's, it's so much better when a pop culture for some, for the reader or for the viewer or whoever to see that thing and say, Hey, I know what that is. And they're in on it. But when the author pauses his story, not that there's much plot, but he pauses it anyway and spends the next paragraph explaining to you exactly what the pop culture reference he just made is. What's the point? You know, I think the point is for people like me who didn't get half, <laughs> half the references and who never knew what is it like war games, war stories, and those bands and those movies like I didn't know those at all. So it wasn't nostalgia for me. It was just a sweet, fun, light story. But the impression I'm getting, so you can judge me now for that. Sure. No, it's a, again, I, I understand why people like the book, although it sounds like maybe you have a different reason than what I thought. For me, maybe it's because I did know what those things were and then had every single one of them explained to me. It really just rubbed me the wrong way. I think a lot of people thought that book was written for insiders who were very in on that time. But but I think actually the insiders would be like <laughs> rolling their eyes pretty hard. Like, but, but you're right because everyone I talk to who knows, you know, who's kind of in on that, you know, the eighties and nineties, uh, you know, nerd culture for lack of a, for lack of a better descriptor likes the book. So, you know, 
Apparently I'm wrong, but I thought it was truly terrible. And again, like the Da Vinci Code, it's one of those that I only finished it so that people wouldn't be able to say, oh, well, you didn't even finish the book. You, you know, how you know, your opinion is invalid. I, that's the only reason I even finished it. I want to throw both books under the bus and say, oh, you compared Ready Player One to the Da Vinci Code? Like, oh, you're going to get hate for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Keith, I would have guessed the book was written for you, like really, truly for you. Did you feel like it was written for you? Because if you did. It absolutely, to the point where it caused the opposite reaction. It was so obviously pandering. Yes. I think that if I were in your shoes, I would feel cheated. Whereas in my shoes, I kind of felt like I was listening in on a conversation meant for somebody else. And that was kind of a sneaky sort of fun. But in your shoes, I can see how I'd be like, come on, man. Yeah. You know, I also, I, I hate to just keep harping on it, but I also had, I, I also had problems with the very rudimentary. So this, this book I think is the opposite of lockstep where this book, for whatever reason, no one saw that this is YA and not particularly good YA. It's, it's so simplistic and, you know, trades in so many tropes and stereotypes, and, you know, and some bad stereotypes. And then there's just like, you know, one scene where he throws in some mentions of some things that couldn't go in a YA book and all of a sudden, okay, now it's not YA. It, it really wasn't great. Okay. I never thought about that before, but now that you mention it, yeah, why wasn't this YA? I mean, I think that to a large extent, those genres only mean so much and that they're very fluid, but, but since, since we do assign books to certain sections of the bookstore, why wasn't this in the YA section? I can totally see that that, yeah. 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 And I, I'm not, I'm not trying to trying to belittle why, I mean, to this day, you know, some of my favorite books are, you know, the, the Westing game and Maniac McGee and, you know, the stuff I read when I was eight. Um, I, I think those still hold up a lot of them. Um, but at the same time, you can't get the same thing out of them that you can get out of something that's written for an older audience. And I think that, uh, this book found an older audience despite itself. And you know, when this book was first recommended to me, it was recommended to me by someone I knew and whose taste I trusted is a book that I would like in spite of its being, oh, oh no. <laughs> I had so many people recommend this book to me. I was like, fine, I'll read it. <laughs> well, see, when they recommended it to me, they said, in spite of its being science fiction, I think you'll love it. But I think that's why I did actually enjoy it because the stuff that grated to your ears flew right over my head. And I think you didn't like it because it, because you actually know about science fiction. You know, the funny thing is I, I'm actually looking forward to the movie because I, even, you know, even reading the book, I was like, okay, this is a terrible book, but it, it's written like a screenplay and could make actually a good movie, particularly because, you know, Steven Spielberg is not going to have the time to stop and reference Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm actually looking forward to the movie. I think it could be good. Keith, what are you reading now? Uh, I am making about my third attempt to read uh, the fifth season by N.K. Jemison. 
Okay, so you've quit it multiple times, but you've come back multiple times. Yeah, well, I can, you know, I, I can tell from the chapter or two that I've gotten through that it's good, but it's maybe too much of a commitment for me at the, at the moment. It's just not something I'm, you know, like I said, you know, sometimes I have to back up three or four pages when I get finally get back to a book, you know, two or three days later. Um, so, or maybe, you know, maybe I need to try the audible version. Um, you know, we'll, I'll, I'll maybe give that a shot and see how that goes because it's, it's one that, and you know, obviously it, what she just won her second Hugo in a, in a row. So clearly it's something that is going to be part of the, uh, you know, the culture of science fiction, uh, for a long time to come. So it's kind of one of those that I need to be familiar with. Um, actually a lot like ready player one, <laughs> except hopefully it'll be better. <laughs> Crossing my fingers for you, Keith, what do you want to see more of in your reading life? Uh, actually, um, the fifth season would contribute to this. I would love to see more diverse authors and protagonists. Um, not by choice, but just because of my kind of chosen genre. Um, it's mostly uh, a whole bunch of white dudes, um, which is fine. You know, white dudes can tell great stories and great stories can be told about white dudes. But there's a lot more out there um, that it is uh, not super prevalent in, in science fiction, or at least wasn't. And, you know, is becoming more so uh, these days. But um, so I'd love to I'd love to do that. And I'd love to, um, you know, like I said, when when non science fiction books are recommended to me, uh, it's my success rate's pretty high. You know, I tend to connect with them and really like them. So, um, you know, something other than science fiction would be great. Okay. I can think of so many titles for you that are very literary, wordy, maybe not what you're looking for right now. So I have some uh, soul searching, <laughs> book searching to do, but we will dive into it right after the break. Keith, welcome back. So I am racking my brain. I have lots of good ideas for you that I think you would like, except for that pesky thing where I think they're probably twice as long as they need to be to the tune of 300 pages. Well, as they need to be for you. And then I'm also thinking of a lot of of uh, lighter, faster books that are more fantasy than science fiction, especially as I think about the like the page turner aspect and the diverse aspect the the fantasy are springing much quicker to mind and there seems to be an overlap but they are not the same yeah there i mean there's a there's a uh, a definite overlap you know the venn diagram you know the two circles overlap quite a bit but yeah they're not the same um i do read fantasy but i i would say i tend toward the more grounded fantasy um you know i read tolkien obviously um that was it was all right. <laughs> you know, I, I, I recognize obviously how good a writer he is, but the, the story was, wasn't really my thing. Um, you know, I really liked, uh, I really liked the game of Thrones books, the song of ice and fire books, um, precisely actually because there's not a whole lot of fantasy in them. Really. There's not a whole lot of magic. Um, uh, other than that, you know, I haven't, really connected with a whole lot of traditional fantasy, you know, the, the whole sword and sorcery and dungeons and dragons, that kind of side of the science fiction fantasy world isn't really my thing. Um, doesn't mean I'm not willing to experiment and try though. Keith, how do you feel about mysteries? 
Oh, I love mysteries. I just recently read uh, The Yiddish Policeman's Union. I really liked that one. That was excellent. All right, Keith, I have a glimmer of a beginning, and we're just going to lean into this. I'm sure that inspires you with confidence. That sounds good. Okay. I was talking to a bookseller last fall, and we were comparing notes on our favorite our favorite mysteries that were out right now and the ones we couldn't wait to come out in the fall season because lots of great mysteries come out in the fall. I think because in the United States, that's the time where you imagine cozying up by your fire with your cup of tea or your cup of coffee and your blanket and stay snug inside and read about somebody being murdered by their, you know, who knows. So that's how we think we're going to get all warm and snuggly in the winter. So he said to me, like, I love all those books you're talking about, but you know what I'm really excited about these days? It's totally different. So of course I was like, no, what? And he started telling me about Japanese mysteries, which was not, I'd never read one. It wasn't something I was familiar with. What about you? No, I, I did not know that that was a genre. Well, I know me either. So the one that he was super enthusiastic about, I'm going to mention for the readers whose ears are perking up, but that's not the one I'm going to leave you with for reasons that we'll get to. So the one he was most excited about was called Six Four. It's by Hideo Yokoyama, and I'm not sure if his books have been available in the U.S. before now, and they were just harder to get, or if this is the first book that has actually been published and readily available in the U.S., but it just came out earlier this year. This has been billed as his U.S. debut, and I haven't read any of his other works. And I peeked at this one, but I have not read this cover to cover. And one of the reasons is the same reason that I don't want to choose this as one of your three, and that is that it's 600 pages, a little more, and it's slow to develop. But it's considered one of the best recent examples of the genre of Japanese mystery. So 6-4 is the code name for a cold case that's at least a decade old, it might be more than two, in which a seven-year-old girl was kidnapped. And even though her family paid the ransom, she was never returned. And all these years later, the case still remains open. So I think the best, the mysteries I like to read by American, Canadian, European authors are multi-layered. They have more than one plot going on. They're, they have lots of action, but they also have lo- lots of underlying emotional content. Um, they can be really poignant, even though they're very plot-driven at the same time. And the bookseller described these Japanese mysteries as being particularly resonant with him because they were quieter and you really had to dig for the emotion. And in the process of thinking about these Japanese mysteries... I found this piece written by Hanya Yanagihara, the author of A Little Life and the People in the Trees, that she wrote about the rise of Japan's thrillers and how they really are being finally recognized outside of their country in their region. And what she says is that if you want to know what people, if you want to know what makes a certain people laugh, you can just watch their TV. And if you want to know how they love, you can listen to their songs. But if you want to know what they are afraid of, then you need to look at their mysteries. And she talks about how the Japanese mysteries are not about like the intruder from outside who's breaking down the gates or the like the foreigner who comes in the community to kill, but about the quiet enemy that arises from within. And she says, if you look at Japan's mysteries through that lens, you're doing it right. So without telling you terribly much about the plot, 6-4 is a hot, buzzy topic right now. It, it's a 
police procedural that also has a huge emotional undercurrent that was just published this year. But 600 plus pages and the reviews say things like, so intricate is to be a little over the top, very elaborate, worth the effort if you can stick it out. And that if you can stick it out worries me for you. So with that in mind, I want to recommend another Japanese mystery published five years ago that is half the length. It's called Salvation of a Saint. It's by Keigo Higashino. And if you heard the plot, you're going to think that it sounds like Agatha Christie or perhaps Donna Leon because it's about a murder by arsenic. And on the surface, you have a very almost simple plot. It's about a Japanese tech president who has decided to make a change in his life. He's going to leave his wife. He's ready to divorce her and move on. And he's poisoned someone puts arsenic in his coffee. And the obvious suspect is his wife, but she's proven to be several hundred miles away. It's not her. So it's this very quiet procedural has complications that keep surprising you. And there's also these undercurrents beneath the surface that you don't find the same way in the mysteries that you might read by your Americans, Canadians, and Brits. Does that sound intriguing or does that sound like what? Uh, I think six, four sounds more interesting. Um, but I, I see where you're going as far as the, the page length. Um, so maybe, maybe salvation of a saint would be a place to start. That one, okay, so I don't think anyone would apply the phrase, well, how about, I don't think the phrase page turner would be widely applied by many readers to 6-4, which makes me hesitant. Right, yeah. But Salvation of a Saint is often recommended as an entree to the genre. Well, I think the genre sounds sounds really intriguing, um, so that that's going to be one I'll have to check out. Okay. For book two, I'm thinking about killing... Pablo by Mark Bowden, who's probably better known for Black Hawk Down. Do you know anything about this one? I, I have I've read Black Hawk Down. I've not heard of the of the title you just mentioned, but I've read Black Hawk Down. Now I kind of want to say, did you like it? But I w- kind of want to say, I it doesn't it. matter. Killing Pablo was better. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, subtitle: The Hunt for the World's Greatest Outlaw. And the thing that is Pablo Escobar. Yes. Okay. Yeah, what do you know? Interesting. Not a lot. I, I know the name. That's about it. Okay. For those who don't know, this is the Colombian billionaire who made all his money from international cocaine trafficking. So the subtitle is The Hunt for the World's Greatest Outlaw. And the fascinating thing about this book is that it came out in 2001. And even as we speak in 2017, news updates on this continuing story keep rolling in every couple months, Um, not changing the story, but very much adding to it. So this is definitely the truth is stranger than fiction, gripping real life narrative. I'm totally thinking of something like um, Into Thin Air or Go Like Hell when I think that this may be a good book for you. Like it's a fascinating story about something that you didn't think you would ever be deeply invested in, um, in reading the history of. But this is the inside story of how U.S. forces and also intelligence agencies led one of, if not the largest manhunt in history, to capture Escobar, who they wanted because of his, like, linchpin role in the Colombian cocaine cartel. So, but with a story like this, you don't just get like, oh, here we go, and let's go get him. You have the rise of his empire, and 
how he came to power, like how the, the mechanics of how all that worked and, um, what brought about his downfall. How does that sound to you? That sounds, that sounds really intriguing. Um, and you know, based on the author alone, I think I would be interested, but I think the story is something that I kind of know of, but don't know a lot lot about. So I think that's, that's perfect. I'm glad to hear it. Okay. But Keith book three, I don't know. What about Ursula Le Guin? I know of her, um, have never made the attempt. I didn't really know where to start. Um, but definitely an author I'm aware of. Okay. So the book I have in mind for you is The Left Hand of Darkness, which is ironically in the middle of a series, but I didn't know that when I read it. And I forget exactly how the conversation went, but a previous podcast guest, and actually it was the guys from the Babysitter's Club Club, which is strange, right? But they mentioned how much they loved Ursula Le Guin. Uh, I think one of their wives had talked them into finally picking up one of her books. And then shortly thereafter, Audible gave me a big like cosmic kick in the pants and put the left hand of darkness on sale for like a dollar ninety five or something crazy when I was out of credits and I snatched it up. So this is number six in her heinous cycle, but that didn't stop me. I'm Oh, you shouldn't you shouldn't have told me that. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Are you gonna go back to the beginning? Oh I, I you know, I I really don't like picking up in the middle. Um it, you know, well it that depends. Like you know, I mentioned uh Ian M. Banks earlier and and you know his culture series, I started that one right in the middle and have just jumped around and it's worked because there's there aren't really any characters that carry over. Um so it's been it that's that hasn't been an issue for me. So you know if this 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 is the same way um you know that wouldn't be an issue. But I think if it's if the whole thing is telling one big story uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take the recommendation, but uh, I will probably <laughs> go back to the first book and start right. there. <laughs> well, let me tell you about the left hand of darkness. Sure. First. Well, just a little bit. Le Guin is an amazing world builder and I haven't read much of her stuff, but this much I have seen. And I believe it when people say that this is true in all her work. So the thing about a lot of science fiction at least to me, tell me if you agree, is that I feel like I spend a lot of time getting oriented, like figuring out the rules of the world I'm in and what the people's names are because they're often strange and figuring out what is the same and different in this fictional world from the world I'm in. So for the first chunk of The Left Hand of Darkness, I was just felt a little overwhelmed with with the world building aspects. But then, man, once you catch up, it really gets you. Um, at the beginning, it feels like, is this just an exercise in in strange names and political and gender philosophy? But, but then, yeah, but then it really, the story takes a few turns. And oh, Keith, do you find this is a problem with science fiction novels? Is they're so hard to describe in a way that doesn't sound totally strange? Yes. I, I, I had that exact experience earlier in our conversation <laughs> trying to describe <laughs> lockstep and, and ancillary justice. That it's, it's very, it, I think both fantasy and science fiction are so dependent on, many of them are so dependent on their setting that trying to explain the plot without first explaining the setting is, is impossible. But the setting is typically so intricate and detailed that 
trying to do that concisely and clearly is almost impossible. Yes. And by the time I'm done hearing about who the characters' names are and why they have 14 moons and why people live 800 years, I, I'm just tired. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why that's why so many authors write in series is because they need so much space to set up. You know, you can't, you know, you can't even, uh, you can't even let your readers just assume that gravity works the same way because maybe it doesn't. And you have to explain that. And, and the best authors don't just explain, they show it through something happening and that takes time. And that's, you know, um, I think that's why so many of them use the trilogy or even just the series the you know, the never ending series, uh, as their form rather than a single novel. Let me tell you what the story is about instead of what happens. So through, through the eyes, primarily of two characters who you really become emotionally invested in, she explores identity and the bonds between people and loneliness. And she does this in a place where it reminds me of the, is it the Inuit? Much of this happens on the planet she creates called Winter, where there are 62 terms for snow lying on the ground and there are more for falling snow and there are more terms for ice. So she definitely has a world thing, but it's also like, it's really cool. It's really cool that the Inuit have 47 terms for snow. And so she does have those fun details that makes this, because if you're going to talk about loneliness, you just can't wax poetic about loneliness for 300 pages. You have to ground it in a story and the details that she uses to bring those to light are really interesting. And even though that was the worst pitch ever, let me tell you a little bit about the first book, which I haven't read. It's called The Dispossessed. It's the first in her Hainish cycle. It was published in 19... No, it was first published in 1974. So these definitely count as modern classics. And picking a Goodreads review at random, never has a narrative on social structure been so good to read. So if you don't find that compelling, Keith... I don't know what's going to grab you. Yeah, I think it's a great recommendation because it's an author who I'm I'm well aware of and have have thought many times, oh, I need to I need to familiarize myself with you know, with her work and actually read it and just never have. So I think that's a great recommendation. Um and you know, uh whether I start with the left hand of darkness or go ahead and back up five books. <laughs> I don't know you yet. Already gave we'll your see. Answer. That's fine. That's totally fine. <laughs> You can just read all her work and then you can tell me what I should read next. Well, that, that might take a while. <laughs> She's pretty <laughs> prolific, but yeah. Oh, that's the truth. And you know what? She has a lot of those Hugo and Nebula and Prometheus awards that I know you pay attention to. And really, I I think her output is actually one of the things that is has caused me to not read any of her books because it's a little bit intimidating. It's like, where do you even start? And, you know, once you start, how long is it going to take to finish? And Yeah, I totally get that. feel the same way about, you know, Stephen King or, or someone oh, like that. Oh, my so. gosh. Well, you start with the ones that aren't terrifying if you're me. Right. If you're a yeah. baby. Yeah. Keith, of those three, four, five titles, what do you think you'll read next? I don't know. I, I may have to grab the samples from, from Google and, and uh, see which one sticks out to me. But just based on, on our conversation Probably Killing Pablo is going to be where I would start. Well, that sounds good. I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Keith today. 
head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Keith and let him know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 100, that's 100, and it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Readers, if you enjoy this podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you would rate or even better review it on Apple Podcasts. I do not know how the Apple algorithms work, but I do know that your ratings and especially your reviews are huge factors when it comes to helping What Should I Read Next move up the charts, and that makes it so much easier for book lovers to find our show. Thanks in advance for taking two minutes to show your support for What Should I Read Next. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. And don't forget, next week we have a very special episode coming your way to celebrate 100 episodes of What Should I Read Next. Hit subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.